Hi, so rather than try to <clears throat> write everything out as a, as a coherent answer because it'll be super long and it takes a ton of time for me to like put it together, I'm just going to do this video and explain and answer your question. So your question was, <clears throat> will Donald Trump pass the Sunday law? And so this is kind of a complex question and so it's going to take a little bit for me to set it up and a little bit for me to explain. And the way I'm going to explain it is I'm going to define um, what exactly, uh, not exactly what, what the Sunday law is, because I think you know about it, but more along the lines of like, uh, what are the components that lead up to the Sunday law and my understanding of it. So I'm just going to say it right off the, the front that if you want to skip to the end and watch the thing, because that's where I'm truly answering your question, having set up all this stuff. Uh, you can do that and then you can come back and watch everything or you can just watch at the end and save yourself the time and and just dismiss my whole thing and just move on with your life. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, you can always watch it from the beginning to the end and be pleasantly surprised. Um, <clears throat> so um, my central thesis is that uh, given the rate of the way the Adventist Church is accomplishing its goal that has that has been given to it by Christ in regards to the Great Commission and spreading the three angels' messages and uh, producing a people that are ready for Jesus' return, uh, the chances of the Sunday law passing are nil, just nil. In our lifetime, it's nil. Um, that doesn't mean that that can change or that it can be uh, different or that um, we ourselves could um, you know, be die from the pandemic or, or in an accident or something like that, and the next thing we see is Jesus coming back. Um, the, the importance here, obviously, is to be prepared uh, for the second coming and to be looking forward to the second coming and to want to be with Jesus. So every day we, we study the Bible, we pray, uh, we engage in acts of um, uh, sharing uh, what God has done uh, in our lives with others and, and things like that. So those things are basic and they're important and you should be doing those things but building on that now we're going to discuss uh, something so my answer is in four parts the first part uh, deals with theology the second part deals with religious liberty and the third is economics i may switch those two around um, and the last is the purpose of the church and specifically our purpose what we're trying to accomplish uh, as a seventh Adventist church so Starting, about, uh, starting out and talking about theology. Um, first, we need to understand how theology is done. So theology, just like science, is based on uh, specific evidence. And that evidence or data is collected from two different sources. The first source is uh, specific revelation, which is the, the Bible itself, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, and then there's general revelation, which is just the world around us, nature, and everything that we observe. So we can see God in nature, and we can deduce some of the uh, principles of, of what God is like through nature, although that's imperfect because it's marred uh, through sin. And then we can understand God through scripture, which is reading the Bible and understanding what he's actually saying. Now, the way the Bible was, was written was that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, and the human beings that wrote Scripture are the writers. So the Holy Spirit uh, inspired those writers to uh, think on heavenly things, or he at times showed them different scenes or whatever, and they wrote down, according to their ability, what they thought 
uh, they were seeing and what they uh, were experiencing. And <clears throat> as they wrote that stuff down, obviously the Holy Spirit was looking over that stuff and he in made sure that his intended meaning to the reader, which is us and those of uh, the days of the prophets themselves, understood what was relevant to their situation. And we understand what is re relevant to our situation. So our, our thing is a little bit different because we have to, you know, we have to take into consideration history and the conditions of the people that existed at the time and the prophet and his particular circumstances and things like that. But God worked with, obviously, you know, God worked with very different types of people. So people like Moses, who were highly educated. Uh, Moses was a prophet, uh, was a poet. He was a philosopher. He was a mathematician. He was uh, a political leader. He was uh, a military leader. Um, but he was also uh, a shepherd. And he also spent 40 years in the wilderness learning from God and unlearning some of the harshness of what he learned in Egypt. And then when he took the children of Israel out of Egypt uh, through God's help, he used a lot of his education and his organization skills to keep a million people sane in the desert. So um, what I'm trying to say is that when we understand the, the revelation, and which is God showing the prophet uh, what he wants, and then the inspiration, which is the prophet writing down that stuff, when we understand those two things, we understand how the Bible is constructed, and then we determine uh, how we interpret the meaning from that. And that process is called hermeneutics. And so as we engage in that process, as we study scripture, and we inform ourselves more and more, and we understand that scripture has its own uh, hermeneutic, or its own key for interpretation, which is the sanctuary system, we begin to use that sanctuary system, that hermeneutic key, to unlock the truths of scripture. And we see this harmonious um, system of truths in which all the different individual truths like the Sabbath, tithing, the second coming of Christ, um, the state of the dead, and other various truths that are found in Scripture, including the historical reality of God working in, in the lives of people, is found in Scripture. We see it all in that system. So that is, that is how um, the Bible is constructed, and then theology is essentially taking data points. So all the verses are specific data points, and you construct from that different models from which you then describe what you are doing. So that's the theological, the formal theological process. I'm greatly simplifying this, but that's essentially the process. So um, now, some people, when they go to scripture, they use different types of processes. So I'm going to give you a slight overview of that. So uh, Catholics, for example, they use a multiple source interpretation framework. So they will take science, they'll take culture, they'll take tradition, the sayings of the fathers and whatever. Um, they'll take anything, uh, any source that's out there, and they'll use those sources as a way to help guide them understand scripture. So this is very important to understand the differences in how uh, the Catholics do their theology or derive their understanding of scripture. And then Protestants do something different. So Protestants, which is the vast majority of people who aren't Catholic that are Christian, um, they use also a multiple source matrix. Some of them use science. Some of them use uh, uh, a modified version of tradition. Uh, but most Protestants in, in general, they use a multiple source and a multi, uh, modified tradition basis for developing their understanding of scripture. They also use it, the tools of culture and uh, other tools that are out there, reason, etc., um, for understanding how they derive their, their theology from uh, scripture. Adventists are very different. 
So Adventists, when we started out, we uh, in the early uh, mid 1830s, 1840s, what we did after the Great Disappointment is we just said, okay, we're just going to lay aside. Uh, William Miller started this, and he said we're going to lay aside tradition, uh, the, the sayings of the fathers, and whatever else, and we're going to lay aside everything else, and we're just going to go to scripture and read scripture for what it says by itself. And so he read scripture all the way through and he came to the conviction that Jesus was coming in 1843 and then 1844 was modified and then Jesus didn't come and then there was a great disappointment and then people began to study scripture again. Now, those people that ended up studying scripture again, they found this system, uh, the sanctuary system, they understood it as a hermeneutic or an interpretive key and they realized that it unlocked lots of truths in scripture and a lot of things made sense within that sanctuary system. And among those things we, we're realizing now today is a very key difference between um, how we understand God and how the Catholics understand God, which is basically um, a, a derivation of uh, Greek philosophy and the, how the Greeks understood the presence of God or the absence of God from, the, from our world. Um, and, and they constructed a view of God uh, based on that and the Pro Protestants have kind of bought into some of that stuff. Um, and we understood God, we understand God very differently. And for those reasons, um, our theology is very different. Now, once you understand those fundamental issues right there, a lot of problems just get solved right there. So we don't have to fear the Catholics. We don't have to fear Jesuits. We don't have to fear anybody else. Those people are well-intentioned people and they're doing the work that they feel they need to do. And we're doing the work that we feel need to, we need to do, and we're guided by scripture. And we, because of our method, we are led in a different direction. And obviously, uh, there is going to be some conflict because those directions are different. Now, the Catholic Church has this prescribed way of doing things, and they've done it for more than a thousand years. And it's worked really well for them. Uh, but Protestants, as you know, in, during the time of the uh, Protestant Reformation and even before that, decided that that was not going to work for them. And so they decided to change things. And as they did, um, it just led to an explosion of growth in different sects in Christianity. So different types of denominations. And that kind of fragmentation resulted from this multiple source thing where um, I could study scripture and I could come up with my own interpretation and you could study scripture, you could come up with your own interpretation and we couldn't coexist and so we'd just go start different churches. And that's what Protestantism is. It's just a fragmentation of lots of churches. So my central thesis is and, the, uh, and it is a central thesis of several other people in the Seventh Adventist Church that if we study scripture the way it is intended, we read it through and we understand the sanctuary system and we see the truths unfold within it, it will actually unify us toward, towards a common mission and a common goal and a common message. And that message will then allow us to develop a logic for how to accomplish that, the, the task of spreading that message and accomplishing the, the task that God has given us in the Great Commission and uh, part of the Three Angels' Messages. So, uh, so I think that uh, when, we, when we actually embrace Scripture for what it is, it unifies us, it doesn't fragment us. Uh, but when we uh, adopt multiple sources or we go to, back to tradition or we uh, do our own thing, even, now this is a little bit controversial, but even when uh, people use Ellen White to do theology, so they do theology out of Ellen White's writings and they come to Scripture, uh, but the problem is when you read Ellen White or somebody else reads Ellen White, they read something else and then you read something else and then there's conflict there as well. So the, the, the key goal is to keep scripture as your only source. And, 
that's what it means to have a sola uh, scripture or methodology. Now we also have sola tota scripture. So scripture. So that means we take all of scripture. So you start from Genesis, you work your way through Revelation, and you see the truths unfold through the entire span of the Bible. And that's how you get the fullest understanding of what scripture is saying. So if there is a text that is uh, obscure, doesn't make sense, you read all of scripture, uh, and other uh, passages will, will illuminate that, that particular text. The reason is there's only one author, and that's the Holy Spirit. And he, even though he wrote, it, he wrote scripture with human beings, uh, over 1,500 years, his meaning and his intentions are the same. He doesn't change. He's God. He doesn't change. And as a result, what he writes all through Scripture is an unfolding revelation of the character of the Father and of the Son and of himself, obviously. So when you see the, the unfolding of Scripture, you're seeing a coherent thought, uh, not a fragmentation of individual men living in you know a vast span of history. So <clears throat> understanding... Um, when you start to understand uh, and apply the sanctuary system and you use the sola tota scripture uh, methodology, you come up with a personalized God, the physical nature of man. That means that man's going to die and when he dies, he dies. You know, that's it. Um, uh, the 28 fundamental beliefs as we uh, articulate them today um, or uh, in, in that general framework, uh, we come up with the conditions of the gospel. So there's very specific conditions of what God, what Christ intended for the Gospel Commission to accomplish. Um, and from that we derive a logic of organization. And we understand that the presence of the Holy Spirit is in His Church, and that leads into a manifestation of the, Holy, uh, of the Spirit of Prophecy. So we believe that Ellen White's uh, life and ministry is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in His Church, and it is one of the signs of the true Church. And so uh, we invite anyone to read her writings and compare them with scripture to find them to be biblically accurate. And um, so <clears throat> that's uh, a nutshell of understanding theology. Now, why does theology matter? Well, it leads to, uh, when you do the theological method, it leads to understanding that theology or the, or the Bible talks about the future. It talks about prophecy. Uh, sometimes the prophecy is just a few hundred years, uh, like in the uh, defining the time when Jesus was going to be born from Daniel's time till when Jesus came as a baby, or it could be it could be spanning thousands of years, like the 2300 days prophecy. So when we understand prophecy, we have to understand that there's particular methods for interpreting it. And we aren't the first people to try to interpret uh, prophecy. Others have done it. The Catholics have done it. Protestants have done it. Lots of people have done it. And so uh, there's three major schools uh, in prophetic interpretation. Uh, one is preterism, so this believes this particular school says that everything happened uh, in the past. Um, there's futurism, which uh, believes that everything will happen in the future. Nothing has happened yet. That the Bible is predicting in Revelation hasn't happened yet, so you know we can just wait. Um, and then there's historicism, which means that God acts in history and is acting in the present. So historicism is what we, as we read Scripture, we derive uh, from Scripture. Uh, and it's a method that we use to interpret prophecy. Now, there's some pitfalls or dangers to historicism. Uh, one of the dangers is being too specific or applying uh, too much of the daily um, uh, of the daily uh, occurrings of our life into uh, prophetic scripture. I'll give you some examples of that. So, um, back in the 1860s, uh, Uriah Smith was convinced that because of the the dominance of Turkey, 
um, as a as a nation in the world in those days that Turkey would play a major role in passing the Sunday law or whatever, like would, would have a major role in end time prophecy. And uh, James White, on the other hand, believed that uh, through studying scripture that it was actually the Catholic Church that would play a major role. And so these two kind of fought it out and Ellen White told him to cut it out because it was not being uh, useful to the, to the work that was needed at hand. And uh, so James kind of held back and Uriah just kept on doing his thing. Um, but eventually, James was proven right because the Great World War uh, happened, or World War I happened, and Turkey's role in international affairs was essentially obliterated um, or minimized to the point where it just didn't really matter. So his whole interpretation just kind of fell apart. Uh, James White's thing continues to this day. So um, that's just an example, uh, one of many examples I can give of the, the errors or the dangers of historicism. So let's just be careful. Um, how we apply uh, these things is my point. Um, moving on from there, <clears throat> when you understand Adventist history and you understand uh, American history and world history in parallel with it, uh, some things make more sense uh, over time rather than sometimes in, in the immediate particulars uh, of the present. So when you look back at the 1920s, what uh, the, the 1900s and the 1920s, you see the rise of science and you see the rise of modernization and that produced a crisis in people because all of a sudden God was not the central object of everybody, but rather you could do, human processes could produce things and be vastly successful. Factories were coming on the scene, agriculture was going off, um, farmers could do more with less. Um, so there was less and less farmers and there was more people migrating to the cities. There was huge amounts of change. Ellen White lived through all that time. And so when she died, there was this crisis. And even in the larger American uh, uh, context, there was a crisis of faith. So people began to wonder whether we really descended from apes and whether evolution was really true and it was it seemed to be proven true as, as people were researching science and applying it to theology and you know re rewriting Genesis and things like that, the Genesis story and um, the, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so for that reason, uh, people started to wonder whether there was um, a way that they could just go back to scripture and they could just focus on the second coming of Jesus. So in that aspect, there was like this huge religious fervor and this movement and Adventists decided to try and join that and, you know, let's present our, our message. But the way we were doing it was not conducive to actually uh, succeeding. Uh, there's a, a person that wrote it a really good dissertation on this uh, on the 1919 Bible uh, conference. If you ever look it up, uh, you can read about uh, some of that later. But during that time, uh, people began to wonder whether now, you know, the first generation of Adventist pioneers had died and now the second generation was getting old and was dying. And so um, Ellen White had just died in 1915 and it's 1919 and people are just wondering, you know, how was she inspired? How did she do work and things like that? And they were surprised to find that she was she did her research kind of like Luke did um, when he wrote scripture. Um, she did she did research. She would look up things. She would write things down and and then put them into her writings. And occasionally um, she would revise things as she got better books and better understanding or whatever, and change those things. So that particular aspect of change um, made people afraid or made people start kind of not, I, I wouldn't say doubt her writings, but essentially like um, be afraid of 
the fact that the prophet was changing what she was saying, so to speak. So that's a little bit of a nuanced discussion that I can't cover all of it in this video. But anyway, um, in that crisis, there was an, a man named uh, M. L. Andreessen. He began to research the conditions for why Jesus doesn't come back, and he did a, a quite a lot. He researched for the rest of his life, but he pretty much uh, did did a lot of research, and he came up with the idea that the reason Jesus hadn't come back is because our characters hadn't been perfectly reproduced, uh, is what one of the conditions in Ellen White's writings. And so after doing theology in Ellen White's writings and reading scripture and applying some of that stuff that he had learned uh, and from the other pioneers, he kind of came to this conclusion and he formulated it and wrote it in his uh, seminal book um, called uh, The Sanctuary Service and in that he talks about the last generation and achieving perfection and uh, being the goal of God and setting aside um, Satan's arguments that God's law could not be kept and things like that. And so anyway, he formulated his, his, uh, his ideas and he teached it all his life and lots of people bought into it. Uh, but unfortunately, um, people uh, took it to the logical extreme um, or just the extreme as it, or the extreme for what it really was. And as a result, uh, people's lives just became ritualistic, formalistic, works-based, that, that stuff. So uh, towards the end of his life, um, there was another crisis in the church uh, regarding some evangelicals coming or reformed brethren coming and asking the church some questions about our faith, the nature of Christ and things like that. And uh, the church uh, composed a very small committee of individuals that tried to produce answers and those answers were unsatisfactory to Emil Andreessen and to lots of other people. Um, but anyway, Emil Andreessen had a fight with the church. He got mad. Um, he wrote letters to the churches. And he ended up um, causing a lot of heart, heartache and pain. And the, the end result of his thing was that although he personally reconciled, he never actually let go of his beliefs. Um, and uh, so he ended up passing away. But... Uh, the result, the end result of that was that a lot of people, a lot of young people left the church and they went and formed their own institutions. So their own educational institutions, their own schools, publishing houses and things like that as a way to accomplish the work. They, they completely decided that God was done with the Adventist church and they were going to do their own thing um, or some d derivation of that. And unfortunately, um, that caused uh, a lot of heartache in the church, uh, a lot of division. And uh, along came Desmond Ford, who was a theologian, an Australian theologian, and he saw one of his friends fall into last generation theology and become works-based, perfectionistic, uh, that sort of stuff, and take his eyes off Christ. And Christ sacrificed for him, and Christ's uh, atoning blood uh, for, for his sins. And uh, he tried to save him, and in the process of trying to save him, he came up with a new idea of uh, the solution to uh, why Jesus isn't here, and now, uh, essentially finding fault with the investigative judgment and the 2300 days and our prophetic interpretation and stuff like that. So he went and read Daniel in a whole different way, doing theology his way, uh, which is a slightly different method. And he came up with his uh, thoughts and beliefs and opinions. And he presented those and the church examined those, rejected them and kicked him out of the church. Uh, when they did that, he, in, uh, in contrast to Andreas, and he told his, his believers people who believed in him, young men and women, to stay in the church and change the church from within. So uh, two different types of 
uh, individuals and what the impact that they had. So he, he just left the fragmentation inside and the church is fragmented from, from on the inside. So when you understand uh, these aspects of um, uh, theology and then the, in the impact of interpretation, the, imp the impact of prophetic interpretation, uh, it comes down to this. When you, when you think about um, how our church um, was created and the message that we have, well, that message changes if you have a different method and you derive a different understanding. So for example, if you take science into scripture, you're going to uh, return with perhaps uh, an idea that we were we evolved over billions of years. So then the the, the plan of salvation, the, the problem of sin, all that stuff just goes, uh, and the need for a savior just goes out the window, and suddenly we're evolving into becoming better beings. Um, that's just a simplification of a very complex theology, but that's uh, theistic evolution. Uh, so when you when you have that idea, then uh, we have a very different message. Come at it from a different way, um, with uh, a perfectionistic view, then you're going to have a different message as well, and a different logic for organization. Because now it's the, the burden's on you, and you're trying to be perfect, and everyone is a spiritual threat to you. And so the whole idea is to like fix yourself um, and keep yourself away from everybody. And so you become this individualistic warrior for God, and um, it causes... Uh, lots of fragmentation in its own way. One, one thing that you'll notice, um, people who work in these independent conservative ministries, they can never get along, not even on their own campuses, but they cannot get along with like each other anywhere else. Um, so I used to think of it as personalities, but actually it's different. It's fragmentation of theology that keeps them apart. So moving on um, with theology, uh, we'll come back to how this fits to the Sunday law question. Uh, let's talk about religious liberty. So um, we have to recognize as Adventists that we are a worldwide movement. We are everywhere in every country. Adventists exist in every single country on earth and under different governments and under different uh, dictatorships and, and whatnot. And so for those reasons, when we formulate our policies here in the United States or when we argue them in the courts over here or we argue them overseas, we have to take into consideration the, the Adventist experience everywhere, not just ourselves. And so this is where uh, North American Adventists cause problems for the global church everywhere. When we try to like think of our ideas uh, of how we, how we exist here, and then we try to superimpose it on other people. So I'll give you an example of that. Uh, there's this pervasive belief, and it's, a, it's an erroneous one, that we were founded, that, the, that, the American that this American country was founded on Christian principles um, uh, from scripture. So... <clears throat> Uh, it, it wasn't, and there's a very specific reason why the founders left religion outside of the founding of the American government. And the reason for that is that they believe that um, the debates and the wars that, that Europe fought over religion were things that they just wanted to like avoid. They just wanted to completely leave that out. So religion is a personal thing that we do, and it's not something that we put the force of government behind it. So that's why we have in the First Amendment, we have five different rights that enunciate those beliefs, including religious liberty. So government cannot put laws on us uh, that um, affect our religion, and at the same time, it cannot restrict us from practicing our religion. So whatever our religion is, it doesn't matter if you're Christian, Muslim, atheist, whatever, uh, Wiccan, whatever. So 
um, that's the that's the beauty and the greatness that is the foundation of the American system of government. Um, that is not true everywhere else. Other countries have modifications of that. Um, and uh, so I'll give you an example of that. For example, in I grew up in Pakistan. I was born in Sri Lanka. I grew up in Pakistan. And one time my dad and I were traveling in a bus. We were going uh, 300 miles from one city to another. So it's an, obviously a long trip. And uh, we were sitting there and the bus driver put in a tape and it was some love songs or, or, or whatever and the music was playing. And uh, somebody from the back of the bus sent a little boy up with a tape. And uh, it was a Muslim cleric and he sent up a tape and so the boy asked for the driver to put that tape in. So he put it in and it was some, it was either that cleric or somebody else just preaching uh, hellfire and brimstone. And uh, so my dad just spoke up and he said, hey, I was kind of enjoying the music, you know. And other people joined in and they were like, uh, yeah, you know, we were enjoying the music as well. And the cleric got super mad. He was like, you know, what's wrong with, with scripture being preached? Um, this Muslim cleric said. And that just shows you um, what happens when uh, one uh, group tries to assert itself on another. Um, you end up with these, uh, just even the simple life, you end up with these uh, issues. So that's for that reason, it's better to live in a society or to create a society where religion and your personal religion and the government and the act of governance is divorced um, from in between. Um, obviously, again, uh, quite a bit of a simplification here, but um, there's that. When we, when we understand uh, that we gain our liberty uh, when we defend the right of others to have theirs, uh, it's a profound difference. It, it makes a difference in the way we think and the way we act and our motivations for doing things and that sort of thing. It also prevents us from diverting from the task of the, the three messages to political movements. So we don't uh, agitate for po uh, political movements. We don't agitate for electing people or whatever. We just kind of like uh, be. And um, that does not mean that we can't be agents for change or we can't see uh, change happen in our society. But we refuse to uh, give credence to religious morality-based stuff because um, who's to say whose morality or whose religion is true or right um, and whose is wrong for that matter. So I'll give you another example of that. Uh, a few years ago, the Catholic Church uh, applied um, a case where they said that the, the rules that uh, Obama, the Obama administration had set regarding contraception, uh, part of the American... Uh, part of the uh, ACA or Obamacare Act that passed uh, Congress said that uh, uh, contraception will be provided to anyone who needs it. And if you're a religious entity and uh, you're against contraception, well, the government will do it for you or will provide an alternative way for, for your employees to get uh, the, the contraception that you need. So um, Obama obviously talked with a lot of religious uh, entities, including the Catholic Church, and he derived that understanding from having that discussion, particularly with the Catholic Church, because that is one of their stances. So they wrote that into law and it passed, and um, lo and behold, there was one small group in the United States, the Sisters of the Poor, who decided that uh, they didn't like that idea. And so they argued their way all the way up to the Supreme Court, where they said that and here's a very novel argument, what they created. What they said was that it is a sin for Catholics to practice contraception because they believe, however they believe, uh, regarding um, how life is produced. And uh, <clears throat> so 
that's fine. You know, it's your belief. Nuns don't have sex and priests don't have sex, whatever. You know, that's your belief. Um, but obviously, there's, there's Catholics who are, um, there are individuals who are Catholic members of, this, of the Catholic Church, and, and uh, they also believe in the, in the teachings of the Church regarding contraception. So a lot of them don't practice contraception, and they have large families. But essentially, this was a work-related issue, and so the, the Sisters of Force said that um, even the government or any other agency providing on our behalf is sin to us. And so we're just asking that you completely cut out that provision from our, from our stuff. It's a very novel argument, but the Supreme Court bought it, and uh, they ended up getting their, their rule passed. The Adventist Church has no such rule regarding contraception. We don't find that in Scripture anywhere. Um, and so we have a different understanding of that. And, but we respect the right for even the Catholics to have their belief system and uh, to practice their belief as they see fit and for government to not intrude on them. So that's just an example of uh, how we believe our religious liberty should work. Um, <clears throat> going on, uh, talking about uh, religious liberty, um, yeah, so let's talk about COVID. So there's a lot of people who believe that uh, COVID um, and all the shutting down of churches is somehow an attack on religious liberty. And this can't be farther than the truth. It isn't an attack on religious liberty. Um, but the reasons why, you can understand the reasons why churches are concerned. So most of the churches, whether they're evangelical or even Catholic uh, or Protestant, whatever, um, they're built on the idea of attendance. So you have to attend church to get the blessing, to get the absolution of sin, to whatever. And part of that is giving offering. And the way they don't have, a lot of these uh, churches don't have systematic giving or tithe-based uh, operations like we do. And so uh, they need members to show up to pay and so that they can pay the rent on the church and the mortgage and whatever else uh, and the pastor's salary and, and things like that. Um, and if members don't show up, they don't get, they don't have uh, money. And uh, so they're agitating that this is an affront to their practice of religion. Um, that is the, the economic uh, part of this argument. And that is something that Adventists don't really understand because we just have a totally different way of doing things. We pay our tithe because we believe that 100% of it is God's and we're returning part of it. Um, and we also give free will offerings. And those tithes and offerings comprise the salaries of workers and the salaries of the ministers, which are paid from the tithe. And so the ministers don't have to worry about their, their pay, and so they can preach with power in the churches and not be afraid of the members, um, uh, withholding their tithe or I mean withholding their salary or whatever like it happens in other churches. They don't have to renegotiate every year for their um, for their uh, what do you call it um, uh, for their salary, uh, things like that. They just don't have to do those things because Adventist pastors don't have to do those things because we have this tithe system. But at the same time. Our church is built on the understanding, not based on attendance. We don't go to church for absolution. We can call, we can call on God at wherever we are and we can get forgiveness of sins. We don't need to go to the pastor to get the, the bread and the, and the host and things like that and the, the wine to, in order to feel like we've uh, embodied, you know, we've taken on Christ. Christ walks with us every day. Um, the angels are with us and his presence is always with us through the Holy Spirit. And we can pray and uh, and. Uh, we can experience the, or by faith we can experience the, the presence of God in our lives. So 
uh, for those reasons, we don't believe uh, church, church attendance is mandatory or required or whatever. We do go to church because it was a custom of the apostles. It was a custom of the, uh, Jesus himself. And because we follow Christ's life and teachings, we also uh, do the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean that we absolutely have to go to church, but part of the reason for going to church is for training, is for organization of services uh, that we deliver, uh, it's for organizing the work, um, it's for discussion of how we're going to govern church, it's for discipline of members, it is for the, uh, uh, you know, and, it, and there's also the worship aspect of it as well. We, we get together and we worship God um, corporately and, uh, and also a tithe collection system and an offering collection system. Unfortunately, over the years, uh, we have slowly started to buy into or uh, borrow uh, from evangelicals, their model of doing church, and uh, from the Pentecostals as well. So we look at the Pentecostals and we admire their song services and we think, hey, we need to have that too. So we try and do their, their stuff. But their song services are developed based on their theology, and it works for them. They're trying to create a certain kind of experience uh, for their members. But that does not work for us because our theology is different regarding the Holy Spirit and, and the way he works in our lives and, and that sort of thing. So we don't have to like gin up our emotions to a high-pitched level and speak in tongues and all this stuff. We don't need to do that stuff. Um, and that's why uh, the things that we borrow from them just don't work in our churches. Um, on the flip side, we've also bought in from the evangelicals other practices. Like, for example, uh, lots of evangelical churches have made uh, activity in church as something as being somewhat salvific. So um, so when you go to church, you feel like you're accomplishing something because you're in the choir or you're collecting the offering or you're moving chairs around or whatever you're doing. You're doing the work of God uh, when you're in church and church is the purpose for that. Um, but again, uh, that is not the purpose of church. When you read scripture and you understand the purpose of church, you understand that we're supposed to open up our homes, we're supposed to invite people in, we're supposed to teach them the word in our homes. We're supposed to model how to walk with Christ in our homes, uh, in our daily lives. So uh, in the old days, I mean, in the times of the apostles, uh, people met in their homes. This is not an argument against meeting in churches. I'm not saying let's do home churches. I'm just saying that you need to understand that the theological, theoretical basis of, of why church exists for us. And that's very different than why evangelicals and Protestants and Catholics and everybody else does church. And so for that reason, we do not need the same metrics that they do, which is attendance, baptism, and cash. Uh, we don't need those things. Um, we don't need those metrics as, as being the, the primary metrics for how we define whether or not we're active for God. Our metrics are different. So yeah, we do attend, we do have baptisms, and we do give our tithe, but we have a, a different measure from Scripture or a different standard uh, regarding what it means to be an active disciple of Christ, which is... Uh, which I'll talk about uh, a little bit later. So uh, when we talk about uh, these differences, uh, then we start and we understand these differences. Then we realize, hey, you know, churches are closed. Hey, it's okay. You know, the, 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 the church of God has lived in the wilderness. It has met in caves. It has met in prisons. It has met everywhere in the jungles and in God-awful, you know, desolate places. Um, but people have remained true and they've, uh, they've remained true to Scripture throughout history. And we are remnants of those people. We are people who uh, d derive or we, we find our theological link to those people. And so, hey, the government closed down the church because of a health issue? Fine. It's okay. 
we don't we don't need to be in church and we don't see that as a threat to us there's other things that we have to worry about and other things that we that we want to accomplish uh, than just going you know to church and taking on a risk that we don't need to take so uh, now just talking a little bit about history when you understand Mrs. White talks about this she says and it's kind of a prediction and it's also uh, her stating reality uh, ministers in her day downplayed the law and the, the obedience of the Ten Commandments and as a result um, she said that over time people would uh, these churches having given up the law they would start to uh, uh, they would start to rest their case with the government on enforcing morality and, and religious based morality and so as a result you can see that now as being a, a huge thing conservative Christians Evangelical Christians are really big on getting their judges uh, put in. So what they want to do is they want to get a president elected who will nominate the judges they want. That will enforce the morality that they want. So we're seeing fulfillments of those things. And what I'm trying to say is that that's not us. Um, we believe from Scripture that God changes us from the inside out. That God makes us a new being. He changes our mind and He changes our heart from the inside. And that then produces outward uh, you know change and you can see that in compliance with law like uh, against those things there is no law no man can write a law against us because um, we end up following the Ten Commandments and we love our neighbors as ourselves and we love God uh, for who he is and we worship him for who he is and he has total ownership of us and as a result uh, people are fine with us because we are loving to our neighbors and we're kind to our neighbors and we we do the things without any compulsion of the police is watching us or the government is watching us or they're forcing us to do something. We know that, that God is watching us and we are held to a higher standard through scripture. So our way of doing things, our way of producing change is different uh, than the way that these churches are trying to do it now, having done away with the law. So, um, yeah, so just uh, 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 a little bit of a history there. So. Uh, as the 1950s rolled around in the 1960s, the science produced a pill which allowed uh, women to not get pregnant or which allowed them to also um, uh, abort the, uh, uh, the baby if they didn't want to have it. Um, and various different uh, contraceptives and practices uh, start to grow and women start to get uh, freedom from uh, uh, the enslavement, if you might say, of, of an unintended pregnancy um, and, and things like that. And so it gave rise to the sexual revolution. And with the sexual revolution came this major pushback from evangelicals. In the, uh, they created their own, uh, what they called the moral majority, and they started electing uh, what they believe were Christian conscientious politicians uh, to push a Christian agenda. And even their prophetic ideas are now uh, espoused by U.S. government policy. For example, they want to uh, build a temple in Jerusalem so that uh, Jesus can uh, uh, eventually um, come back because they believe that that's part of uh, the fulfillment of his coming back. And so the whole idea of, um, of Israel policy and, and stuff like that has its roots in evangelical theology. So when you, when you understand those things, conservative judges, uh, Israel, um, when you understand how, um, you know, in order to accomplish this, uh, these goals, um, Christian politicians do unchristian things to get elected. Uh, so part of those things are like the war on drugs that Nixon started, uh, criminal sentencing uh, on crack co cocaine, which put 
thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of black men on, uh, in prison for no reason other than having uh, a certain uh, form of cocaine when the pure version of cocaine um, is what white people used to have and um, the sentencing uh, disparities exist widely uh, between those things, between those two, two groups of people. Uh, coded dog whistles for racism, gerrymandering, all the political dirty tricks, all that stuff uh, start to become uh, more and more prevalent um, to our day when it's just uh, really, really um, out in the open now. So when you, when you start to see those things, um, you start to realize uh, the true aspects of uh, religious liberty and uh, what happens when religious morality is practiced in uh, the public sphere. So uh, going on from there, uh, let's talk about uh, economics. So there's biblical principles for finance, investments, debt, income, uh, inequalities in wealth. Um, uh, and a good example of uh, an early example of uh, investments um, is uh, one that Jacob made. So Jacob made a contract, a futures contract with his uh, uh, father-in-law where he said, I'll work seven years and then you give me uh, one of your daughters. And so he worked the seven years and he got his daughter. Um, that is, uh, or a swap, uh, those, are, those are different types of uh, financial transactions that are recorded in scripture. Jesus talked about taxation, he talked about money, um, he discussed uh, even temple income. Um, the disciples did those uh, did the same thing. They they raised money. They had safe houses. They networks and uh, delivering cash to needed parts of the world uh, where the church was suffering, whether it was famine or whatever. Um, they had all these things that they didn't really write about, but they alluded to, and we know that that uh, they obviously uh, had an organized way of uh, funding their uh, the work of God on earth. So uh, Jesus talks about buying and selling in, uh, and giving into marriage all the way will happen till the end. He talks about, um, and then John talks about uh, not being able to buy and sell as a condition of prophecy. Um, but what you'll find is that most Adventists are not self-sufficient. Um, they're not financially independent. They're dependent on, um, because of credit and easy financing, they're slaves to debt, um, and they're slaves to um, the banks. And uh, as a result, with the rise and fall of the economy, they're really, really vulnerable. Um, so uh, part of, uh, one of the things that I noticed when I used to pastor churches is that so many, so many members are unable to actually work for God, even in their homes, because they have to keep working to just pay off the, the iPhone and the HBO and everything else that they have on payments. And as a result, um, they, they're not financially free because time is money and they spend most of their time earning money and paying it to their creditors. So for that reason, um, it's almost impossible for God's uh, people to do work. Uh, so one of the conditions of, you know, what I'm trying to say is um, be debt-free, um, don't take things on payments, and uh, live your life uh, uh, as financially independent as possible. Make your investments in the market and uh, take care of your retirement so you're not dependent on your kids, you're not dependent on the church or anybody else for for help. Um, <clears throat> so part of uh, part of the economics also has to do with um, the gospel. So this is where I'm going to explain how uh, economics works. So if you work, I've worked with, I've shared the gospel with the lowest of the low socioeconomically, and I've shared the gospel with really rich people as well. So 
uh, obviously it takes different techniques and there's different cares and worries and, and things like that uh, that each uh, different types of people deal with, including the middle class. Uh, but when you're working with someone you know, on the lower uh, end of the socioeconomic ladder, uh, I'll give you an example. So for example, let's say I'm witnessing to some girl that I knocked on the door and uh, she's living in with her boyfriend and she's got three kids. And obviously she's living in sin, according to, according to scripture. And uh, she needs to get married, but she doesn't want to marry this guy. He's abusive. But she can't leave because she doesn't have any skills and she doesn't have any, you know, uh, any job prospects and she's got three kids. And uh, the welfare check barely covers their meals and, and stuff like that. So she's stuck, you know. So how do you get her out of sin? You have to think about it. You can't just preach the gospel to her and then leave her there. You have to actually help her. So you got to figure out what the intermediate steps are. And part of it may be giving her some math tutoring so that she can pass her GED, uh, teaching her how to construct sentences. So again, she can pass a GED. And then after GED, then she can go to college. and she, Or she could get a job as a phlebotomist, or she could get a job as an EKG tech, or, or some kind of a CNA, or some kind of skill that gives her money, that allows her then to get the freedom that she needs to provide for her kids and move out, or be on an equal financial footing to where she can, uh, you know, ask the guy to be nice to her and, you know, be a real man and marry her and all this stuff, you know. So you have these, uh, these issues that you have to work with uh, and economics and finance and accounting and all this stuff plays a role. Uh, same thing on the other end of the, the ladder, like uh, the other part of the world. Let's just say that we, we go to an area and there's people there and they're uneducated. Well, we've got to get them educated. Uh, so education plays a role. Healthcare plays a role. Vaccinations. Um, health messages, health talks, getting them to stop eating meat and, and eat regular, you know, uh, lentils or whatever uh, is cheaper for them and it's better for, for the environment and better for society and for their health and those type of things. So you got to like educate people to those levels. And there's a logic to working through that stuff. And economics plays a role there as well. So if you don't, if you don't realize how uh, pervasive economics is and its relationship to the gospel, um, you're, you're, you have a huge chunk missing. Um, and then obviously at the end of time when you're not able to buy and sell, you have to be self-sufficient in some way or you have to, obviously you have to rely on God and you have to have the trust that uh, developed up that, that God will take care of you. So on the, on the flip side, when you're working with rich people, um, they've got assets, they've got investments, they've got lots of things going on for them. Uh, time management may be an issue, just, you know, um, uh, the uh, pride, ambition, you know, the, the love of life or whatever might be a greater issue for them. And you have to work with those things uh, and help them understand the intricacies of the gospel and the importance of, of uh, whether it's giving or uh, enabling giving or whatever it is, enabled empowering or whatever. But you have to help them understand that aspect of it as well. So, for example, when Jesus uh, met the rich young ruler, he told him to give up his money because that was a, a condition that was keeping him from heaven and he wasn't able to. Uh, he told his disciples to let go of their income and follow him. Um, so there is a tie with economics and the gospel and the three angels' messages that a lot of people have not explored yet. And it's something that we should probably look into more. Uh, okay, so just moving on. <clears throat> uh, so this is where I'm coming now to answer your question about the Sunday law, whether or not Donald Trump will pass the Sunday law and why I don't think he would and why I don't think Sunday law will happen in my lifetime, just the way we're going with things. So the purpose of church is the fourth thing. So we've talked about theology. We've talked about religious liberty. We've talked about the role of economics. Now we're talking about the final thing. We're talking about theology, uh, the purpose of the church. 
So what exactly is the purpose of the church? Like, why do we get together? Why are we, why are we doing all the things that we do? Why do we call ourselves Adventists? Uh, for what particular reason? Um, well, we are called because we read scripture and we, we develop our logic from there. But now I'm going to explain the logic for why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, for what we find. So we find that there's a message that we have to give to the world. We have to live it as well as a witness. Um, and so there's a certain logic to how we do that stuff. So Jesus said, uh, let's look at the conditions. He said uh, in Matthew 28, 18 through, through 20, he said, um, all authority is given to me uh, in earth and uh, in heaven and in earth. And uh, therefore, he said, go make disciples. So that's step number one, go make disciples baptizing them, that's step number two, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then number three, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And uh, surely I'm with you all the way, even unto the end of the age. So even in the Great Commission is Christ's promise that he's going to be with us till the end of the world. But in this Great Commission is also the blueprint for how we accomplish our work. So Christ understood that people who wanted to follow him first became disciples. They first committed themselves to him personally meaning that they would die for him if if necessary. They would separate themselves from their parents and their family or whatever if necessary. But being with Jesus was the most important thing and learning from him, being in a condition of learning. And that's what a disciple is. So once you committed to that lifestyle and you started living it and exemplifying it, then you're baptized. So a lot of times we flip that around and we try and baptize people first. We give them a little bit of information and then we baptize them, and then that's it. But here, the New Testament shows a different way. It says, you baptize people first. <laughs> you, you, you make them disciples first. And then, after they have committed to being disciples, um, and f uh, leaving all and following Jesus, then you baptize them. And then you teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a different way of how he did it. And that's the way that we're supposed to do it too. And what I'm trying to explain to you is that um, the way the Adventist Church does its recruitment, its acquisition, is flawed. It's flawed theologically, and as a result, we're experiencing the the fruits of that. But the requirements for Jesus to to come back um, obviously um, are right there in the conditions of the gospel, and the three angels' messages have to go, uh, you know, have to be preached and lived. Um, that's also part of our message. And so <clears throat> those, are, those comprise the requirements for Jesus to come. Now, uh, there have been uh, certain uh, levels of uh, either delay or hysteria uh, that has occurred. I'll go through a few of those. In 1844, we believed Jesus was coming back. We misread scripture. We were wrong. Uh, in the 1920s, we believed uh, that uh, we were entering a new age um, of progress and whatever. Completely wrong. Um, the great, the World War, World War One devastated humanity, and then it was just a whole new reality from there, from then on. But we ended up buying into fundamentalism, and and we reaped the consequences which I described before. Uh, in the 1960s, when um, JFK was elected or was going to be elected, lots of Adventists thought the Sunday Law was coming uh, because he was Catholic. It turned out he was a better defender of uh, his liberty than most people uh, before or since. Um, <clears throat> then uh, in the 1980s we had a bunch of people write books like Crossing the Jordan and whatever else and they had to rewrite their books because the predictions of the earlier books didn't come true and it's just a, a, a never-ending hysteria um, the Pope visited and, and uh, 
worked with uh, Ronald Reagan and people thought that they were putting together the Sunday Law? No. Um, then uh, in 2001, 9-11 happened and people got scared and they thought that Jesus was coming back. It's coming back really, really quick and we've got to do something. And so young people organized and they formed GYC. Um, not to say that, that God wasn't leading, but here we are. Um, in 2008, uh, the financial crash was coming. Some people predicted it. Some people foresaw it, like David Gates and others, and they just whipped it up into a whole new frenzy, and we still are here. Um, in 2015, the Pope came and visited the United States, and a lot of people thought the Sunday Law was surely coming, and here we are. Um, so, and now in 2020, there's some people that, like Walter White that are saying that Jesus is coming in 2027, and, or is not walking back from it, or alluding to it, or whatever it is. It's just like, no. Uh, no man knows the hour, the day, or the hour. Uh, except the Father, and that's what Scripture says uh, regarding Christ's actual coming. And at the same time, we can't be complacent. We can't say that Jesus is coming in five years, or he's coming, he's not coming in a lifetime, or whatever. We have to be uh, alert um, all the time, and we have to be looking uh, all the time. We need to be in a constant state of readiness, um, is the point of Scripture. So, <clears throat> uh, going on from there, um, even in Paul's day, there was an early delay where people thought that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, and Paul was like, no. The man of sin has to be revealed. Here's the conditions of what he would be like and all this stuff. He wrote that all down and it went into history and in the record. And sure enough, um, the man of sin uh, is being revealed. So you can see um, those aspects in scripture uh, that are there. And we need to understand that there are delays uh, still on our end. Ellen White wrote about delays as well. She said that we could have been in heaven right around 1844. Um, if we had actually followed through and understood scripture and proclaimed the three angels messages um, But we didn't and like modern Israel. We're still wandering around the wilderness. She wrote that in 1880 in the 1880s and then again in, in, in 1911 and here we are we're still wandering in that wilderness um, So there's there's been delays and we've been a part of those delays and what I'm trying to explain and what I'm trying to say right now is to answer specifically your question uh, the reason why uh, I do not believe that Sunday law is going to happen is because of the way we do things right now. The Adventist church, the way we do things right now, are not conducive for the Sunday law being passing simply because we do not obey scripture. Um, we aren't doing what scripture is, is saying uh, regarding discipleship, um, regarding the logic of the work, the organization, and things like that. We have a bunch of conservatives that are doing their own thing. They don't want to work with the church. Uh, they feign loyalty to the church, but they're really not loyal. Um, they really don't care about the church. They're doing their own thing, and they're failing. They're failing. They've failed, and they're failing. Um, uh, to just give you an example, accreditation was such an evil thing, and they were like, hey, it's the most evil thing in the world, and the church is babbling, and it's taking accreditation, all this stuff. Guess what? They're accrediting now. Uh, they're buying their accreditation, and they're getting their kids you know, educated and all that stuff. So please, you know, <laughs> the, the, what I'm trying to say is like they're on their own tangent. Then you've got the uh, progressives of the Seventh-day Adventist Church um, that have bought into science and have bought into evolution and uh, they've completely obliterated the first 11 chapters of Genesis and formed their own theology um, regarding um, everything in Scripture uh, as on the basis of that and they're on their own tangent as well. Um, and then there's the mainstream Adventist Church that is trying to accomplish something but it's failing because uh, of the way that we've borrowed ideas of other churches into our church. We've borrowed theological methods that produce fragmentation. We've bought ministerial methods that produce uh, uh, not the results that are conducive to our theology. 
Um, and we've uh, walked away from scripture in some aspects. Like we have subtle pastors in the North American division. There's a pastor in every single church specifically uh, to service members when Mrs. White specifically said, do not have pastors settled over churches. But we have them. And, you know, the results are just like every other church uh, in, in America. Our churches are failing and are empty um, because of that, just like uh, the outside churches as well, you know, the non-Avenist churches. We're experiencing the same results. We've sown the same seed and we're expecting a different harvest. But in reality, uh, we're getting the harvest that they all, uh, everybody else is getting. So not only have we failed to heed scripture, we've failed to heed our own prophet. Um, regarding how to do church and how to disciple our members. Um, our retention statistics are atrocious. 49 out of every 100 Adventists that are baptized into the church leave within three years. So we cannot have a successful church if half of our members leave every three years. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. So for those reasons, I'm, I'm just telling you, like, let's just be honest. Uh, we're not accomplishing the work of God on earth, and we aren't finishing it. And there's no need to even think about the Sunday law right now because we're not doing the basics. Um, <clears throat> our acquisition, so I'm going to talk about the, the Adventist church problems in a little bit more detail now. So our acquisition, the way we bring people in uh, is flawed. We do the 21-day uh, evangelism series, which doesn't work. Um, there was somebody who did that to bring former Adventists back in, and it worked. And now everybody does it to non-Adventists and to people who don't know anything about our faith. So in 21 days, we try to take them from zero to heroes. And then once they're baptized, we just forget about them and they end up like walking out the door um, because nobody cares for them and uh, they haven't developed sufficient roots into understanding why they believe what they believe um, or they just believe on a superficial level. Um, and uh, Or they believe and they, they do believe. Lots of members that have left believe what we and still hold to the beliefs. It's just that other members around them didn't demonstrate the love of God to them and they're like, what's the use? Um, nobody cares about me. I'm not involved in the church. Uh, nobody involves me. Nobody involves me in doing anything. Um, no one has empowered me, trained me, whatever, to bring people in. Um, so why go to church? So that's apathy is what has uh, led them out. So um, that is that. Then we've got race-based conferences. That's a, that's a sin that uh, we just keep perpetuating, and it just needs to go. Um, we've got ethnic churches. Same thing. It's just cultural pre preservation by another name. And... Um, we're just preserving culture. We're not bringing in anybody. I think ethnic churches don't reach out to people. Um, they just keep, you know, it's just basically like if you're Vietnamese, you want your kids to be Vietnamese and have that Vietnamese identity or the Indian identity, the Pakistani identity or whatever it is, the Romanian identity. It's like we have the same uh, ethnic church problem, you know, across all ethnic churches. And Mrs. White condemned it in her day and we're still doing it in our day. So go figure um, <clears throat> in the global south, we're talking about the hemispheres of the, of the world. So in the global north, that's the United States and a lot of the white countries, Europe and that sort of thing. In the global south, we've got Asia and Africa and that, you know, a lot of that. Um, so in the global south, we have corruption. Uh, corruption in delegates and how we apportion them for the general conference. Uh, corruption, you know, you basically uh, report more members coming in than really are every Sabbath. And so more delegates are assigned to you, which means more dollars go to you from the church. Uh, that's fraud. Um, so we have corruption in delegates. We have corruption in cash allocations. And we have corruption in leadership. Corrupt leaders in, in unions and conferences all over uh, the global south. And uh, they're perpetuated and, and empowered by corrupt people under them. So <clears throat> that leads to a decline in membership. In the global north, we have uh, theological corruption. So we don't have financial corruption. 
uh, or delegate corruption, that sort of stuff. No, we can't remember this properly and, and all that stuff. But uh, we have theological corruption, which I mentioned in, you know, a little bit earlier. And that has an impact on the Adventist education system. So when we have theological corruption and we've got corrupt or we've got theologically deficient or people who just don't believe in our message, teaching in our uh, seminaries and teaching in our schools, uh, well, they're going to produce Adventists in their image. And that's going to cause fragmentation. And it is already. Um, and then what we have is uh, has an impact on Adventist administration because the Adventist church uh, doesn't do competency-based, uh, you know, um, competency-based, uh, what do you call it, progression, career project progression. We do tenure-based stuff. So if you become a pastor and you're a pastor for three years, five years, ten years, you end up in the conference and then you end up in the union and, and so on and so forth just based on age um, and experience. Um, uh, you, you end up perpetuating those same problems. So as Adventists go to school and they get educated and their theology ends up being warped, uh, they end up going into church into working and over time they just rise in leadership and then they attract people who believe like them. So you're creating this entrenched problems in the church uh, based on that. Um, <clears throat> and that leads to decline in membership, which in turn leads to decline in people sending a number of people sending people to our seminaries and our colleges, which leads to cash crunches. So one of the reasons why a lot of our schools and uh, colleges and universities have to uh, open in the middle of a global pandemic is because we don't have cash. Um, and they need students to show up to pay cash in order to keep those uh, institutions alive, because otherwise they're going to go down the road of Atlantic Union College, where a bunch of colleges end up in this financial spiral where they don't have enough money um, and then the, the accreditation boards get mad and then they start to de-accredit uh, them and then you lose your accreditation, you lose your students and your school closes down. That's what happened to Atlantic Union College and that's, what's, that's what will happen to Adventist universities and it's already happening uh, to some Adventist universities out there. Uh, Pacific Union is one of them. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, so action items. So, um, so, I'm just telling you, like, when you, when you get to this point where you don't put in the right effort to recruit people and train them and uh, build them up in Christ the way Christ prescribed in his Great Commission and in his actions as a, you know, as a master teacher uh, and the disciples that followed in his footsteps and the, our pioneers who did that as well. Our pioneers worked six months in, in one place and raised up people to the point where those people are still in the church six generations later. Um, that kind of work, that kind of retention that kind of engagement in the work is non-existent in our church today or very little in our church today. And it's for that reason we're failing. And so when we don't do those things, um, we have problems. Uh, when we do theology and we use a multiple source theology or anything that is not conducive to producing the, the kind of results, um, the kind of uh, the, the, the results that we get from the sanctuary-based system, well, you're going to have different messages, conflicting ideas of how to accomplish things, conflicting logics of organization, uh, conflicting ways of doing things and fragmentation just builds from there. Um, you have to understand uh, history. You need to understand the currents of history. You need to understand what's happening in the world and how people are reacting to it and how we fit into that equation. You need to understand policy and governance and politics. You need to understand how people are elected, how people put in systems of government in place and how those systems either oppress people or empower people and are conducive to the gospel or not conducive to the gospel. Um, you need to understand religious liberty and not the stuff that's sold at Notre Dame uh, that has been bought in by some of our professors and taught at our schools and practiced in courts and whatever. Like, no. Uh, you need to understand religious liberty from history and also from, from uh, Ellen White's writings and from the Bible as well. Uh, 
Um, <clears throat> going on, uh, obviously, we need to understand the impact of pandemics. Um, we need to understand the, the impact, the coming impact, and the continuing impact of climate change. So lots of people are losing access to water, and that's causing global migration, and it's causing wars, because we're going to have wars and conflicts on water. Just the access to water alone are, uh, is going to pro cause problems, because everyone needs water, whether it's for plants or for animals or for human beings, consumption, whatever, sanitation. All those things are affected. Um, as uh, the ice caps melt in Antarctica and in Greenland and other places, um, seas rise, and as seas rise, they start to, you know, the beaches start to come in. Um, it affects weather patterns as well around the world, so the weather is much stronger. Um, those things are real, they're factual things. Like, if you want to know the impact of uh, climate change, just take a, an ice cube tray out and keep it outside, pour a little water at the top, and just watch what happens in the heat. Um, you will see uh, the effects of water as, uh, you know, um, as it affects the ice. And, uh, and you also see how direct uh, heat affects the ice. Um, that's exactly what's happening. So these are just ice cubes on top of, you know, certain continents and water is melting and going underneath them and undermining them from underneath and uh, accelerating that melting. And believe me, it's going to cause problems and it's going to affect our, our ability to uh, explain the gospel and to preach to people um, and uh, to preach it in wars uh, over water and other things. So we need to understand those impacts and how it impacts us. It doesn't mean that we're not going to continue preaching. No, we are. We just need to understand if there's ways that we can stop it, minimize it, or we can like lead people to understand that God is the creator and, and we are stewards of this earth and we are stewards of, of, of everything that is given to us. And as a result, we're supposed to, uh, you know, not dump plastic into the ocean, not dump sanitation into rivers and, and things like that. Uh, practice good, healthy habits that keep us clean and that keep us disease-free and things like that. Those are things that we need to understand. And when it comes to pandemics, we need to understand that um, as we continue to clear out forests, well, those bugs come into our bedrooms and they come into our houses and stuff like that. Or as we remove natural predators, those natural predators that keep nature in check are now, you know, nature is having uh, a free reign and it's causing pandemics to grow and in severity as well. So these are things that are peripheral, but they also do affect uh, the reception and the spread of the gospel. And we need to deal with these things in a factual way, um, which includes the use of science and the use of mathematics and machine learning and algorithms and, and artificial intelligence and things like that. So <clears throat> uh, what I want to leave you with is um, a quote from Ellen White where she says, uh, the work of God can never be finished on this earth until the men and women comprising our church membership rally to the work, unite their efforts with those of ministers and church officers. So <clears throat> if you see people doing their own thing, beating their own drum, whichever wing of the church they're in, tell them to come back. Um, you yourself, spend the time in your word, spend the time in, in scripture, understanding scripture, understanding what, what Christ is trying to tell us, uh, what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us through scripture. Um, understand our message, understand its impact on your own life. First uh, John 4, 19 through 21, uh, part of it says that, you know, if you cannot love the, the, the brother you see, how can you love the God you can't see? So for, that's the essence of, in my mind, the gospel. So if we can't express uh, the principles to each other, how can we then live in heaven and express them to God himself? And so for those reasons, I, right now, as it stands, no. 
the Sunday law cannot be passed and it won't be passed, um, unfortunately. But if we reform things, if we reform the way we do church, if we reform the way we um, uh, acquire members and the way we train them and, and, and uh, the way we manage our finances and our tithe and, and various things like that, and we truly understand the role of religious liberty and economics and the, the proper way to do theology and our method of doing theology, then yes, we will get there. And I believe it can, like, I believe that Jesus can come in our lifetime. And I believe that when that happens, it'll be an amazing thing. But uh, up and until then, let's just not, you know, please, let's not, um, you know, be children. Let's be adults. Let's be factual. And let's realize that we're not doing anything. We're nowhere near finishing the work of God on earth, the rate we're going. And for that reason, we can't hope for the Sunday law to be passed in our lifetime. Thanks.